Well, our scripture for this morning is Revelation chapters 4 and 5. I'm going to read through verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 4. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, Fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast down their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. has been opened for us to heaven in reality that is far greater than my words are going to be able to express in this time. And so uh, we're just going to need some prayer and ask the help of the Holy Spirit to get into this text. So with that, let's pray. Oh, Lord God, you are on your throne and you are worthy of all of our worship, of, of everything we have to say or do or accomplish you are worthy of all things done unto you. And so we just ask that you would help us to open our eyes and to expand our reality to know that you are a God on your throne, reigning and ruling forever and ever. So Spirit, apply that. Open our hearts to that. We pray this in your name. Amen. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, 
There's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. An outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh, or the wicked mother godness or the four noble truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you'll have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. These are the words sp uh, spoken by David Foster Wallace, a professor, an author, and not a Christian. And he's a keen observer of human nature. That as humans, we are all worshipers, whether we know it or, or we don't. And, and he even takes that a step further, a, a truer truth, which is that what we worship consumes us. And whether or not that is a good thing is based on the worthiness of what we worship. If it's not worthy of our worship, then it will eat us alive. But if it is worthy of our worship, it will make us into the people we are supposed to be. We are what we worship. In Revelation 4 and 5, John is going to make this, this very point that that there's a God who is worthy of all of our worship, and it is an all-consuming reality, that it will be defining for us in the very end of the age. But as, as we've heard read, Revelation 4 and 5 is not a worship theology 101, all right? It's an interesting text. It begins in the first verse saying, these are the things that must take place, which is a key word throughout the book of Revelation that starts major sections. It happens in Revelation 1 to set up the letters to the churches, and it happens here in Revelation 4 and 5 that will then set up the rest of the book. And I like to title that section, The Story of the End of the World. Uh, that's what we're getting. This is the start of that story. What is the future going to hold? What will happen in the future? But before John can go there, what's about to take place? He first has to reveal who is worthy of holding the future and who is worthy to unfold the future. Right? That is an all-consuming reality. Right? How is God going to conquer at the end of the world? And the way he's going to conquer is going to be the way that we conquer. So for our text today, we're going to follow that exact outline. Um, I'll put it on the screen. It's worthy. Uh, first we'll look at worthy is the one sitting on the throne to hold the future. Then it's worthy is the lamb standing at the throne to unfold the future. And then the last part will be to worship the lamb and the one on the throne. So with that then, we're going to just kind of talk through some key images in, un, under the first point in, in uh, chapter 4. Okay, but as, as we heard it read, we're, we're in the thick of it now, all right? We're in the thick of Revelation. There's no turning back. Revelation 2 and 3 those were letters to the churches, and that was easy. And now here in Revelation 4, we have animals or like eagles with heads of 
men and cows and there's thrones with thunder and lightning coming out of it and rainbows, right? What the heck is going on, right? This is where things get weird and there's, and it's like this for the rest of Revelation. The thing about it, right, is that it's only weird to us. Um, we're dealing with a particular kind of literature. It's apocalyptic literature. And for, for us, that's weird. For the first century, it's totally normal. It would be like for us only ever reading uh, an encyclopedia our whole, our whole lives and then turning to some poetry. Like what would you do with that? If all you read was facts and then you had a Shakespearean sonnet and you read, you know, how shall I compare thee to a summer's day? You know, thou art more lovely and more temperate. How could we understand that? Or maybe this metaphor will connect. Imagine Martin Luther, the German reformer in the 16th century, opening up a book and finding a Twitter feed, right? All he would see is many tic-tac-toe signs followed by grammatical nonsense, all right? He wouldn't know how to read it, and just like that would, that was, that would be true for him, this is true for us. We don't know how to read apocalyptic literature. It's not, we don't read that kind of stuff. Um, and so one tool I want to equip us in today is how to interpret symbols, how to understand them. And the way to do that is, number one, just let Revelation itself define for us what the images are. So, for example, as John says, he sees seven torches, and the seven torches are the seven churches. Okay, we know that's what that symbol is. Um, but if, that, if Revelation doesn't define it, then we know he's drawing from Old Testament imagery, a lot from Daniel and a lot from Ezekiel. And he's also going to pull imagery from his Roman context in the first century. So, for example, in, in Revelation 4, we have a throne room with a throne at the center and several thrones around it. Well, that is a common depiction of a Roman emperor who would sit in the middle and then other kings would come and lay down their crowns and, and worship him or, or at least praise him for his strength and power. And so if John was in the 21st century having this revelation, he may express it in terms of the Oval Office. Okay, so he's using those images. So under... Worthy is the one sitting on the throne to hold the future. I'm just going to pull out a few of those images and help us understand what in the world John is trying to do. And so the first, images, the first image he sees is a throne and the one sitting on it. Verse 2, heaven is ripped open, right? And what a privilege we get to see into heaven. And what is at the center is a throne. Now that image is easily understandable for us. A throne is an image of power, of rule, of authority. But yet it's in the center of heaven, which means that heaven in the book of Revelation is the interpreter of all reality. So it's not just any rule, it's ultimate ruling, it's ultimate authority, it's ultimate power. And there's one sitting on the throne. He never uses the word God. God doesn't show up until we hear the elders and the creatures praising God. And so he wants us to be so keyed into the fact that at the center of heaven is a throne, that someone is ruling, that the, at the center of all reality, there's one sitting on the throne who is controlling all things. And then he pro provides some wild descriptions, okay? Verse 3, the one sitting on the throne was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Then verse 5, out of the throne comes flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. All right, so these images are evoking immense beauty. I mean, it's, it's precious stones. The one sitting on a throne would, would be like a diamond. It's beautiful. 
But not only that, there's a rainbow shooting out, out of it, and it looks like an emerald. And so it, it's, it's so beautiful, yet at the same time, it is horrifying. There's lightning bolts coming out of a throne, right? If, if you've had lightning you know, strike near you, it's, it's powerful, it's bright, it's deafening. And so at, the, at this throne is, is immense beauty, but at the same time, unbelievable power. And yet in the throne room, the description keeps going. That around the throne, there are creatures and elders. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. And there's 24 elders sitting clothed in white and garments and gold, golden crowns on their heads. And then later on, there's four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. All right, so the, the 24 thrones could be the 12 apostles mixed with 12 key leaders in the Old Testament, or it could just be all of the people of God, the church. And then there's these creatures who represent uh, all created things on earth, and they're worshiping day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and is to come. Right, John, as a Jew, using the language that he has, he can't express anything holier than saying holy three times. That's the holiest way to say holy. But we also get a description of the one sitting on the throne. Verse 8, he is the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Verse 9, him who lives forever and ever. Verse 10, him who lives forever and ever. The one sitting on the throne is infinite. He existed before all things. Whatever is now, he existed before. Whatever, whatever is now, he rules over. Whatever will be, he's in charge of. So that means his power is infinite, his glory is infinite, his beauty is infinite. And so everything falls down before in verse 11 and says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. He's worthy to hold the future because he has created all things, because he is infinite in beauty and power. Now, we can't, we can't grasp that. We never will fully be able to grasp the infinite, okay? But I, but I want to take a step, all right? Help us take a step of expanding our, our, our limited understanding of, of reality. So, uh, Sometimes at night when I go to bed, my mind starts to wander. My room is peaceful, it's dark, it's flat, everything's quiet. And my mind just starts to think, oh my gosh, I'm laying on, my, on a bed that is located on a massive round earth that's moving at 1,000 miles per hour, circling a sun that's part of a solar system, that's part of a greater universe. And I start to realize how going in and out of my day, my, my perception of reality is so limited. And so I want to provide a concrete example of what, it, what really how small we are in comparison to something much bigger. And so I threw up a video, Tim's going to put up a video, that uh, compares the size of the Earth to the size of the Milky Way. So go ahead and, and we'll watch that for uh, I think it's a minute or something like that.
I don't know how you experienced that, but I experienced that as being pretty breathtaking. Um, you know, the earth, I mean, imagine the Grand Canyon, with its size and its beauty, the Pacific Ocean, its vastness and its depth. And yet all of that is but a fraction of the Milky Way. And so how much more is that true of you and I compared to an infinite God who is infinitely powerful, infinitely glorious? You see, John is not talking about some, some theological abstract principle. He's speaking to a group of people, of Christians, who are being slaughtered for their faith. They're being killed. Revelation 6 is going to talk about how, how there's prayers that the saints are praying to, to say, Lord, end the, end the suffering. And, and God will say, not yet, not yet. More has to die. Right? He's writing to people in immense suffering. He's trying to expand their concept of reality, that there's something all-consuming that's taking place, which is the infinite power and glory of God. As, but just as the earth, right, is not less beautiful by the size of the universe, neither is our pain or our suffering or our accomplishments or joys. They're not invalidated by the, by the infiniteness of God, but yet at the same time, just as the earth is consumed by the universe, so is our pain and suffering consumed by the glory of God. You see, we live our lives under microscopes, okay? We have the accomplishments of the day, the things we need to do with our kids, the things that we focus on, and that's all we see, and we miss out that there is a greater reality, which is God's ruling authority, that he is sitting on the throne, that he holds the future, and that's there's something there to trust in. There's one to trust in. He is the one sitting on the throne, and he holds the future. That's not all to the infinite power of God. There's another person at the center of the throne, which brings us to our next point. Worthy is the lamb standing at the throne to unfold the future. Chapter 5, verse 1, continues the, the image of, of the throne room, what, what John is seeing. It says this, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written on side and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who was worthy to open the book and to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open it or to look into it. So he sees the one sitting on the throne, he holds out the right hand, which is a scroll. And in apocalyptic literature and in the Old Testament, that is a scroll representing the future. And for John, what's in the future is what he's longing for and what he's been hoping for, right? They're experiencing suffering and persecution. In that scroll is the reality of everything sad being made untrue. It will all come to an end. That joy will be expressed and experienced. And yet... No one on heaven, no angel can open up that scroll. No saint, no martyr on earth can open it. No one under the earth, no creature can open it. And John begins to weep. It's this longing that he has seen not fulfilled. And, and, uh, and it makes me think that feeling of, of a tragedy, like as if the Song of Songs, uh, if you've ever read that book in, in the Old Testament, right, it's a story of lovers. Uh, who are about to get married, and there's a vignette about how they get separated, and they search all over. They search high and low. They search the cities, the towns. They have conversations with friends and family. Where is my lover? And it's like it's been turned into a tragedy, a love story without a lover, and here, a salvation story without a savior. 
everything sad stays true. And so John weeps. But then he hears a voice. And an elder said to me, verse 5, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome or conquered so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. John has an elder tell him, hey, I see the Messiah. Right? That's, what that, that's what those images conjure up. A lion, the lion of Judah, the anointed one, has come and he has overcome, he has conquered. It's, in my opinion, the defining word for the whole book of Revelation is the word conquer. Tim talked about it last week. The churches are to conquer. And this, this lion has conquered, and so he gets to open up the seals. But then John will turn and look, right? He heard it's a lion, and then he's going to turn and look, and it's something else. Verse 6 and 7, I saw between the throne and the four living, living creatures and the elders standing as if slain, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So he heard a lion, right? There's a lion, and he finds out that it's a lamb. Not just any lamb, a lamb that has been killed. Right? A lion represents strength, power. There's seven, it talks about seven horns, which in the book of Revelation is, is that of power, of rule. And, and the number seven is that of perfection. It's perfect power, perfect rule, and covered with eyes that go out into the, into the earth. So there's perfect wisdom. And yet the paradox is that a lamb is none of those things. A lamb is weak. A lamb is foolish. In the Old Testament, lambs are killed. Lambs need a shepherd. And this lamb is one that has been killed. And it's this lamb, it's this paradox that is at the center of the, of the throne, which is the epicenter of infinite power and glory and sovereignty. The description keeps going. After taking the book, verse 8, when he, uh, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Right, so just as the creatures and the elders fell before the one sitting on the throne, they now fall before the lamb and they worship him and sing a new song saying, worthy are you to unfold the future, to open up the scroll. You have overcome. And how did he overcome? It says in verse 9, by being slain, by purchasing for God with his own blood. He's worthy to unfold the future because he is conquered by dying. John could not be more jarring here. Winning comes through defeat. The lamb overcame by dying. The purchasing of God for himself is bought not by killing, but by being killed himself. Right? This is the most important paradox for the rest of Revelation. How do we overcome? How did the lamb himself overcome? Is Jesus' death on the cross. And that wasn't just some reality back in uh, in history, that's how Jesus won and, and saved us from our sins. That's also how he will win in the future. 
There's this great, great quote from Lauren L. Johns. It says this, John saw something of the cosmic significance of the death of Jesus, not just as a means of salvation from sins, but as a revelation of God's will for dealing with violent evil and the means for unfolding God's plan. Right? In other words, right in chapter 4, the throne is the epicenter, the image of God's ruling sovereignty and worthiness to hold the future. And in the midst of that throne is a slain lamb, which shows that power is in faithful suffering. You want to overcome the end of the world, you must die. You want to be a faithful witness, you must suffer. You want to be victorious, when God comes in his wrath, you must sacrifice. To win, you must lose. I think the, the best quote I've heard about Revelation comes from the Two Horizons commentary, and it says this. The God who is victorious over the dragon and the beast has won through the exercise of wounded love. He's exercised, he's won through the exercise of wounded love. And yet this shouldn't surprise us. This is the story of the New Testament. Jesus shows up on the scene in the Gospel of John. And John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God. Philippians 2 describes how Jesus left infinite glory to be, spit, to be spat on. How he left infinite purity to take on the sins of the world. Right? He left infinite pleasure to suffocate on a cross. And it's by that that he won. Philippians 2, 8 through 9. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Because of his death, he is given honor. And his reward for that, or what he has purchased, is what he says in verse 10, is you and me. He has made us to be a kingdom and priest to our God. And we will reign upon the earth. Right, we started off with this quote from David Foster Wallace and, and, and this thought that that we are consumed by what we worship. And what we worship defines who we are. And, and A.W. Tozer put, puts it a different way. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as, a worship as the worship entertains higher low thoughts of God. What Revelation 4 and 5 wants us to think about God is that his power has been expressed through being slain that his rule is expressed through a slain lamb. And if that's true of who God is, then that is going to be true for us. That is true for how we overcome and conquer the world. Right? The story of the end of the world, Revelation 12, 11, says this. And they overcame him, Satan, because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of the testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. This is who, this is what this passage is calling us to, is to go and do the same, to overcome as faithful sufferers. One of the biggest things that Revelation is trying to address with the first century church is not their persecution, but their struggle with idolatry. And what this passage is pointing to is that suffering is the antidote to idolatry. Right, suffering in light of the fact that God has secured for us victory, has made us a kingdom and priest by being slain his own self, has called and, and led us to suffer as well, which is an antidote to idolatry. Because at the heart of idolatry is a desire to avoid in, at all costs any form of pain and suffering, which is difficult because everything we are 
right, tries, tries to avoid suffering at some expense. Physiologically, when we experience danger, we have the fight or flight response. Relationally, right, we develop insecure attachments to protect us from relational pain. We construct our politics to preserve a safety net for our own selves, for our own people groups. We build our homes. We, we do all these things to protect our own selves, to avoid suffering. And I know this is the heart of idolatry because Isaiah 44, 17, you should just read the chapter of Isaiah 44 to understand idolatry, but at the heart of it, it says this. The idolater falls down before the idol and worships. He also prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. That is what idolatry is. It is seeking deliverance from pain and suffering, from the fear of what will happen. But when we accept that victory comes through suffering, Right, that everlasting joy through faithful witness in the midst of pain. Right, we stop looking to our idols to save us, but instead we trust in God. A God who secures for us the victory through his own suffering. Right, and then our lives become consumed by the infinitely glorious, the infinitely beautiful, the infinitely powerful, wounded love of the Lamb of God. That is true worship. That is the worship that we are called to. Which brings us to our final point, to worship the lamb and the one on the throne. And in reality, this, this isn't even a, a final point. It, and this may cause us to be a little uncomfortable. What I really want to do, the rest of, of chapter 5 is basically a doxology. It's, it's a praise of the lamb and praise of the one sitting on the throne. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite up the band right now. And I'm going to just read this passage over us. And the reality is that in the throne room, no one is standing. And so what I want to call us to, if we're able, is that as I read this passage, we would all just get on our knees if we can. And if you can't do that, then you can do a take on another posture, which is just putting your hands up or, or opening your hands, a posture that, that symbolizes that we're, we're bowing before the Lord. And then after we do that, we've done something called a prayers of the people before. And I'm just going to let a time of silence uh, be in the room, and people can just call out in praise or in worship uh, of the Lamb and the one sitting on a throne. Or maybe call out in repentance. I know that was my immediate response to this passage. It's like, man, my, my concept of, of God is not this high. I don't live with, with this perspective that God is on his throne reigning in infinite beauty and power. And so with that then, once uh, the time is that Nate feels right, he'll just lead us into the next worship song. So with that, if you are able, um, with me, join me on our knees. And I'm going to read for us the rest of Revelation. If you can't, again, you can just put your hands in the air. Or whatever posture is most fitting. And then go ahead and call out and, and praise to the Lord. So John's vision continues. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all things... I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. 
And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped 